the most expensive film ever made. It won 11 Oscars. And it starred Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio. And if you like a weepy romantic film, then you'll really enjoy it. Any guesses? Titanic. Now this movie told the incredible story of this famous liner on its maiden voyage across the Atlantic. Now it was back on the 10th of April 1912 and passengers went on board for the very first time. And on board Titanic they were all having a wonderful time. However, she was about to strike an iceberg a few days later. At 11.40pm on the 14th of April 1912. Less than three hours later she lay broken in two at the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean. Now at first, the owners refused to believe it. It just simply couldn't be true. Philip Franklin, the vice president of the company which owned Titanic, told the press, we place absolute confidence in Titanic. We believe that the boat is unsinkable. However, by 6.15 that evening, he, re he realised, unbelievably, he had a false confidence. Confirmation had come back. It was really true. Titanic had sunk. Gentlemen, Philip Franklin would now tell reporters, I regret to say that the Titanic sank at 2.20 this morning. And the next morning, it was front page news all over the world. This unsinkable ship had sunk. Two thousand years ago, a man called Paul wrote a letter. He wrote from prison to a church in Philippi. And in this letter, he writes about the dangers of having a false confidence. Now, it's a false confidence, not in a ship but in our standing before God. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Last summer, a camera team went out to Princess Street, and they asked people how they thought they would get to heaven. Now, the majority said, it was all about trying to do something. Going to church, being a good person, giving to comic relief. You see, it was all to do with doing something. But Paul says here, if our confidence is in what we are trying to do, or in who we are, the flesh, then it's a false confidence. Alex Latier, in his commentary on Philippians, writes very helpfully. This is what he says. We learn what is our true state before God only when we accept that it is not only man at his worst but also man at his best who is flesh and therefore not yet acceptable to God. And so this morning we're going to think about what it means to have either a false confidence in what we do or a true confidence 
in what Christ has done. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. It's on page number 1180. Let's read it once more. There's only six verses here. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. So Paul is writing here, and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and to put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. And so firstly, there is a false confidence in what we do. Many of us are currently thinking about our summer holidays, our two weeks in the sun, and it sounds wonderful. Now, one place I would love to go is Iceland. And a highlight would be to go and see the geezers. Now, in some parts of Scotland, if you said that you want to go and see a geezer, exactly, I think you're talking about a person, a geezer, but that's not what it means in Iceland. A geezer is a hot spring, and they can erupt with jets of water reaching 200 feet high. Now, in a way, Paul is like that. He's always hot underneath for Jesus. And so, every now and again, he will burst out. Now, from previous weeks, we saw he burst out in chapter 1. He rejoiced. Why? Because the gospel was being preached. And in chapter 2, he rejoiced again. Why? The Philippians were holding forth the word of God, even against all the odds. And we'll see later in chapter 4, Paul, Paul bursts out again, and he says... Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. But here in chapter 3, there is something quite unexpected that's about to happen. If you look down at verse 1, Paul begins here. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Now that word finally can be a very helpful word. Preachers love it. Why? Because everyone thinks you're about to finish. That's true. However, in Greek, the word finally here is more like our so then, or to proceed then. And what Paul is doing here is, he's picking up the theme of rejoicing we find in chapter 2, in verses 17 and 18. But notice, on this occasion, when he speaks about rejoicing, there is something else that's about to happen. 
And it's this. He wants to warn the Philippians of the dangers that they face. And so Paul begins here by giving a stark warning. Now we often remind children of different things, such as how to behave when they're at school. And now Paul is reminding Christians here, and he's reminding them of our confidence in Christ. And so he says, Rejoice in the Lord. And now if you look at verse 2, here we see why Paul is reminding us to rejoice. And quite suddenly, the whole tone changes. Wham! You really feel that underneath, Paul is burning. He is burning with a righteous anger. And now here's what, here's what Paul writes. He says, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. And it is powerful stuff. So why? Why does Paul warn the Philippians to watch out for these people? And who exactly are these people anyway? Well, they were called Judaizers, and they were devout Jews. And now they said that for a non-Jew, a Gentile, to be saved, then you must do certain things. Get circumcised and obey the law. Now, if we go back to the Old Testament, we find that God had given circumcision as a sign to Abraham of their relationship in Genesis chapter 17. God told Abraham, stay with me, for the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. And so to be right with God, the Judaizers said, that is where you must put your confidence. It's in something that you do. Question, why then were they so wrong? Well, they were wrong for two reasons. You see, firstly, in itself, circumcision was nothing. And why? Because it was only an external sign of an internal reality. Take the example of my old car. Six years ago, I bought a Peugeot 306. It was my pride and joy. I mean, it had done 40,000 miles on the clock. Last December, it had done 250,000 miles on the clock. And things were going badly wrong. It broke down three times in three weeks. The head gasket blew not once, but twice. The water pump was leaking. And it was making some very weird noises. Strangely, no one wanted to buy it. You see, externally, it still looked good. Or at least, I thought so. But internally, it was rotten. Absolutely rotten. And now here's the point. Being right with God is primarily about something inward in your heart. And that has always been the case. God says about the nation of Israel in Isaiah 29, verse 13. Listen to what he says. These people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's about something inward, a heart transformation. As Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, what counts is a new creation. And now, there's a second reason why the Judaizers were so wrong, and it's this. 
they were misreading the Old Testament. Okay? With the coming of Christ, circumcision is no longer relevant. Instead, it is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, who comes to live within us. It's a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Don Carson comments helpfully about this new covenant. This is what he says. The Old Covenant Scriptures, that is the Old Testament, do not establish eternal structures of religious observance that are capped by the coming of Jesus. Rather, they anticipate his coming. They look forward to his coming. They announce his coming. But it is his coming that is the ultimate hope. And so the Judaizers were wrong for these two reasons. And so Paul says, beware. Beware of these false teachers. Never forget how you became a Christian or how you become a Christian. And notice, it's not only a stark warning to the Philippians, it's also a strong statement about the Judaizers. If you look at verse 2, look what it says. Paul describes these false teachers in strong language. And he calls them dogs. Now, when I was younger, you may know, I really wanted a dog as a pet. And ideally, I would have liked a St. Bernard. Tremendous dogs. But I compromised on a Cocker Spaniel. It wasn't quite the same thing. But it was very cute. And every day I would feed it pedigree chum. It's true. And every night, it would sleep in our kitchen. However, that is not what Paul is speaking about here. Dogs were not house pets in Paul's day. They were an absolute menace. Roaming the streets and hunting through garbage dumps. And the Jews even taught that all dogs were unclean. So when they spoke about the Gentiles, guess what they'd call them? They'd call them dogs. We look down at verse 2. That is how Paul describes these Judaizers. And it is strong stuff. So why did he do that? Why did he, why did he call them dogs? Well, here's why. It's because they were proclaiming a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Galatians chapter 1. You see, they said, it is very well to say that you are born again. But to be a real Christian, you must first also do this. And they would add to that with all their rules and regulations. However, if you look at verse 4, notice what Paul says. He says, look, if you can get right with God by something that you do, then I have got it made. And why? Because in religious terms, he was a superior applicant. Now we're currently in the month of May. And during this month, many students are about to finish up at university. And when a student, he when a student hears that, some words immediately leap into their minds. Such as exams, jobs, application forms, personality questionnaires, all 45 pages of it, just to cheer you up. Now think about this. If Paul was applying for a job with Judaizers and company, then he could really impress. He could really charm. 
Look at verse 4. Here's what Paul could say in his application form for Judaizers and co. Okay, Paul, so let's hear about you. Circumcised. Yes. And on the eighth day. Your race? Israelites. Wonderful. Now that was a key one. You see, when did, what the Judaizers hoped to achieve by Gentile circumcision was this. It was to bring them into the privileges of belonging to Israel's race. But look at this. Paul had these privileges by birth. Your tribe, Benjamin. Super. Benjamin was a child of Rachel, Jacob's wife. And the great thing about Benjamin was this. Stay with me. When under Rehoboam, the kingdom of Israel was split up, Benjamin was the only tribe which remained faithful with Judah. And as well as that, it was the tribe that gave Israel its first king, a man called Saul. Languages. Some employers like it if you can speak French or German. Well, Paul could put down that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You see, the Jews had spread all over the world. But a true Hebrew kept the Hebrew language. Achievements. I was a Pharisee. All good. Very strict with all traditions. There were not very many Pharisees. Never more than 6,000. But they were the spiritual athletes of Judaism. And look where Paul studied. Under Gamaliel, the leading Pharisee of his time. Track record. I persecuted Christians. This guy has got the job. You see, Paul had been so incensed by the Christians teaching about Jesus. For hadn't God cursed Jesus by hanging him on a tree? Sorry. Is that me? And finally, it's okay. Legalism. He was faultless. He scrupulously kept all the rules for the Sabbath, food laws, and cleanliness. Paul was a supreme applicant. And if anyone could get right with God by human effort, it was Paul. A very religious person indeed. But then one day, everything changed. Saul of Tarsus, the rabbi, had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The one who died on the cross and rose again so he might be forgiven and be reconciled with God. And Paul would never be the same again. You see, all his life, he was trying to do something to get right with God. However, he was about to learn it's all about what Jesus has done. If you look at verse 7, we'll unpack this more next week. He writes, But, whatever was to my prophets, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So now we come to a true confidence in what Christ has done. If you look at verse 3, Paul writes here, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And now, Paul highlights here three hallmarks of an authentic Christian. Three hallmarks of someone whose confidence 
is in what Christ has done, the true circumcision. Now, to drive this home, I want us to look at three examples. Now, examples of people who show us what this means in practice. Now, firstly, an authentic Christian is characterized by true worship. In response to what Christ has done for us, we worship by the Spirit of God. And we worship God, not only with our lips, with our voices, but with our whole lives. Peter O'Brien writes in his commentary on Philippians, he says, This same Spirit is the initiator who enables Christians to serve and please God in a service of a comprehensive kind that includes not simply prayer or worship in a formal sense, but the whole of life. Now, two people who show this hallmark of authentic Christianity are Dania Curry and Heather Mercer. Dania grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, and Heather grew up in Virginia. And they both went to the same university, Baylor University in Texas. Now, in early 2001, Dania and Heather went to serve the poor people, poorest people in Kabul and Afghanistan. However, within a few months, they were arrested by the ruling Taliban. Why? Because they were telling people about Jesus. Now, the thing which stands out about Daniel and Heather is this. Their lives are marked by true worship. For even in their darkest moments, they sought to live for God. In November 2001, they were rescued by the US Special Forces. And President George Bush gave a press conference on Rose Garden. And he said this about Daniel and Heather. Listen to this. Heather Mercer and Daniel Curry decided to go to help people who needed help. Their faith led them to Afghanistan. Their faith was a source of hope and kept them from becoming discouraged. I talked to them right after their release, their freedom. And I sense no bitterness in their voices, no fatigue, just joy. It was an uplifting experience for me to talk to these courageous souls. It was true worship. Why? Because they were seeking to serve God with the whole of their lives. As we heard last week from Ben Stone, we don't have to go to Afghanistan to serve God with the whole of our lives. We can do that right here in Edinburgh. Here's a question we can all ask ourselves, and it's this. In my life, do I worship God by what I do, by what I say, and by what I think? Worshiping God with our whole lives. And secondly, a hallmark for an authentic Christian is true glory. Now this word glory can mean to boast. It is to boast about Jesus Christ the crucified, the risen, and the exalted Son of God. And our second example is of a man called Henry Martin. He was a Cornishman, born in 1781. At the age of only 14, Henry Martin went to St. John's College at Cambridge University. And in 1802, he became a fellow of his college. But in July 1805, aged only 24, he turned his back on a brilliant academic career. And why? Because God had called him to be a missionary. And so he set sail for Calcutta in India. 
And from there, Henry Martin later went to Shiraz in Iran. And in Iran, he finished his Persian New Testament in one year. Now, in this translation work, he was given help. And he was helped by an Islamic scholar. And one day, this scholar told Henry Martin about a recent victory over the Russians. And here's what he said. He said, The crown prince, along with his troops, had killed so many Russian Christians, listen to this, that Christ from the fourth heaven took hold of Muhammad's skirt, entreating him to desist. Imagine the scene. Christ is kneeling before Muhammad. How did Henry Martin react? I was cut to the soul at this blasphemy, he said. Now listen to this, and think if we can say this. He said, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always thus dishonoured. He died October the 16th, 1812, only 31 years old. And so what motivated Henry Martin to visit both India and Persia as a missionary? To risk injury at the hand of fanatics and to learn three languages in translation work? It was this. He boasted in Christ. He gloried in Christ. And his desire was that the exalted Christ be given the honour due to his unique name. For he alone is worthy of all praise. And what a challenge that is to us. In my life, do I share that true glory, that true boasting, that true jealousy for the honour of Christ? And now the third hallmark of an authentic Christian, we find here, is true confidence. Look down at verse 3. We put no confidence in the flesh. As Paul has been saying, our salvation is found only in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes these famous words. For, it's, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This morning we were thinking about the Titanic. Now one survivor had an incredible story. And here's what happened. When he was in the water, he drifted near to a man who asked him a direct question. And the man asked him, Are you saved? No, he replied. And back came some words from Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And then he drifted, drifted apart once again. And the same thing happened once more. Now after that, he never saw him again. And after he was picked up, picked up, he found out who that man was. It was, it was a Scottish Baptist minister, the Reverend John Harper. And that man later became a Christian. And he often called him to trade himself as John Harper's last convert. And listen to this. The records actually show that when Titanic began to sink, John Harper gave up his life jacket to someone else. And why could he do that? It's because he lived with a true confidence. His confidence was in Christ alone for his salvation. In the crucified, the risen, and the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that is why John Harper could face eternity with complete confidence. And so in conclusion, this morning we have looked at the choice we have to make. And it's this. Is our confidence in what we do? Or is our confidence in what Christ has done? Isaac Watts knew where his confidence lay. And he could write these famous words in his hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. I wonder if you also could say that this morning. Let's pray.